I like that a lot. What if sprint goal is just another aspect of sprint backlog? So not yep. a new artifact, but a first class citizen. I love that. I think yep. that's a great way to do it without making Scrum heavier. You're listening to Ryan Ripley and me imagining how we'd update the next edition of the Scrum Guide. This is Neil Benson, and you're listening to the Scrum Dynamics Podcast. Behind Scrum Dynamics is the belief that if you're implementing Microsoft business applications, then you can use the Scrum framework to slash your project budget, shrink your delivery timeline, mitigate technical risks, and have a lot more fun delivering business apps that your stakeholders will love. On this episode, I have the pleasure of discussing Scrum with Ryan Ripley. Ryan is a Scrum.org professional Scrum trainer, and he's the co-author of Fixing Your Scrum with Todd Miller. We're going to be discussing whether Scrum is appropriate for Enterprise Dynamics 365 ERP projects or smaller Power Apps projects. He's got some great advice for first-time product owners, as well as experienced Scrum Masters. We'll also learn about the different training courses and certifications available from Scrum.org. Just before we chat with Ryan, I wanted to celebrate three Customary Academy students who recently completed my Scrum for Microsoft Business Apps course. Simon Smith from Sky Tech here in Brisbane, Australia. Erwin Dory from Lycom Telecom in Ghent in Belgium. And Patrick Wright from Cherry Bakert in Richmond, Virginia, who's also gone on to pass his professional Scrum Master Level 1 certification. Congratulations, Patrick. If you want to learn about the benefits and basics of Scrum, you can enroll in my free Agile Foundations mini course at customary.com slash foundations. That's the word customer with a Y on the end, dot com slash foundations. Here's the rest of my interview with Ryan Ripley. Well, Ryan, it's a pleasure to have you on the Scrum Dynamics show. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Neil. It's awesome to be able to do this with you. Just before we get into some of the questions about Scrum, and I really want to dive into your new book, um, I'd love to get to know you a little bit better. And if you can share with our audience, what we like to do is ask you first up, what did you have for breakfast this morning? What did I have for breakfast? So I got up this morning, my wife, she made me a heart healthy breakfast. So she did this like Denver omelet with egg whites and not too many eggs some nice chopped up ham, some really fresh pepper, but she did let me have half of an English muffin. So it was like a oh. nice tender omelet and then a nice, like one of those nice, really English, English muffin and uh, just a little bit of butter. So awesome breakfast. Good. Is that a regular staple for you? You know, sometimes it's either we've been alternating between oatmeal and omelets. So yeah, it's very healthy in your heart. Trying to keep healthy as, uh, as we deal with this new and dynamic changing world. Yeah, good. We're going to get into how you get into Scrum or how you how you landed your current role. Yeah. But can you tell me about your first role after school? How did you land your first job? So my first job was a Cold Fusion developer. So I don't know if the people out there remember Cold Fusion, kind of this web language that was out there. You know, I went to about a year of university and then decided, man, I'd rather just work. And they might have invited me to leave as well. There might have been some mutual <laughs> decision there. But I just went off and started doing that kind of programming. like. Application development has always made sense to me. And I was first and foremost a developer. So that first job was working with a major auto parts retail uh, company, and they were using Cold Fusion for their website. And I spent uh, quite a bit of time down in the Austin, Texas area working on uh, websites for them. Cold Fusion was a macromedia product, is that right? And then it yeah, was acquired so by Adobe, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I don't even know if people are still using it, but that's where I, I kind of started. And then I, within a year, drifted over to Java. And for the next 12, 13 years after that was a, a Java developer working in Fortune 500s, whether it's medical device or uh, a few other industries. But yeah, a year or so in Cold Fusion and then kind of jumped up to the one of the big languages. Good. And tell us about what you're doing now. You're a professional Scrum trainer. How did that come about and uh, what are you doing today? Yeah, it's pretty wild. So, you know, I, I mentioned being a developer for a while and then at some point, you know, got married, started having kids and I just could not keep up. Like it is really like I have a lot of respect for the professional developers out there. There's so many APIs, so many new things to keep track of. And 
And I just kind of, I started drifting a bit and I went into project management. I loved the idea of staying close to tech, but kind of serving the teams and kind of getting things out of their way. And so I was a, a straight up PMI, Pembach loving waterfall project manager. And so I, I, that's the way I was taught. So that's the way I worked. And it was in 2012 when I went to a two-day class with Ken Schwaber. I went to, went to one of his scrum courses. It was co-taught by some really awesome PSTs. One of them is actually a Microsoft employee. So David Starr was one of the co-trainers. I know David Starr is one of the, I believe he's still in Microsoft and uh, he's an amazing uh, or was an amazing professional scrum trainer. I think he's focused on his career there now. But, you know, Ken Schwaver, David Starr was there. Richard Hundhausen, who is an amazing Microsoft partner. Yeah. Porter, like a, just a really like murderer's row of awesome professional scrum trainers. And I, after this course, I just, man, my, my eyes were open. Like I saw this, this avenue, this way of working with people that didn't have to be so directive, that didn't have to be so, so full of big upfront planning. And I just fell in love with it. And I went back to the company I was with and the temptation was let's do it all at once. But I decided, what if we just did a few things really, really well? So we just, we figured out what is our definition of done when we're working on a, on a product, on a project, on a feature, what does it mean to say done? What does it mean to say that this is of high quality and ready to go in front of a customer? We kind of, we used scrum to implement scrum. We just did iterative and incremental, very slow, did it over a course of a year or two. I, I never understand when people, why people want to use uh, Waterfall to implement Agile. That's never made sense <laughs> to me. But we did that. And suddenly, you know, after a couple of years, you know, the leadership team came around to me and said, hey, Ryan, your teams are doing really well. We love the way you're interacting. We think you'd be a great people manager. And so I jumped two feet into that bear trap. I started managing people. And uh, that was just another awesome experience. Fortunately, I kept the Scrum Master mindset going into leadership. So I saw myself as a servant to the people who reported me, not the other way around. And not surprisingly, we had some success there and people wanted to work with my teams and, and we, had, we got some really great people. And I progressed my way through the Fortune 500, through varying roles of manager, director, lower level VP uh, responsibilities. And then one day, like for me, Neil, the vision that I had in my head, how I would know that I made it <laughs> was that I got right? I had an office, I had a window, and I had a door that I could slam. Did you have your own parking space outside? I didn't get the parking space. I wasn't quite wow. that high yet, but I had my own office and I had the door to slam. And to me, that was winning. And one day I got in that office and I sat down and for some reason, I kind of looked out the window towards the area where all the pods of, of my development teams were sitting. And I kind of blinked. And I, I swear I had this moment where I fast forwarded like 25 years. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be sitting here in 25 years. I really miss being out in that area with the teams figuring out how do we remove impediments? How do we do agile product ownership? How do we do agile product management? How do we bring technical excellence to the forefront? And so I quit. Like I, and that was a very interesting discussion with my wife that night. <laughs> like I basically went home and said, you know, babe, I've, we've, I got to quit. I can't do this. I'm going to work with teams. And it's a very, some very difficult conversations, but I ended up going to, I I took a scrum master role at a different company. I just really immersed myself in that role for a number of years. In parallel to that, scrum.org has always been super supportive of me. It's an, it's an amazing organization. You know, Dave West, Daphne Harris, Eric Nyberg, Kelly Mosman. I mean, they, they have this amazing, I mean, I'm leaving so many people off. They're going to be mad at me, but so Steve Porter, I mean, they've, they've just been great mentors to me over the past five, six, seven years. And, you know, every year they'd say, hey, Ryan, you're ready to be a trainer. You're ready to come join us. And finally, two years ago, I said, yeah, I would love to, to go on this journey of working with teams all over the world. You know, I've been blessed to have opportunities to teach on multiple continents, many, many companies. And I've just, uh, for the past two years, been trying to spread professional scrum, you know, breaking the patterns of bad scrum. How do we get teams delivering? How do we get, do all these great things and uh, haven't looked back since? Great. Well, that's, that's a fascinating story. I'm, I'm really excited to have you share that with us. I wanted to dive into one of the things you mentioned there was about adopting Scrum gradually. Yeah. Because that's not something that, well, I, I've done that before, but unconsciously. You know, the, the Scrum framework's fairly simple, right? There's three pillars, there's five values, three roles, five events, and three artifacts. There's right, 19 right. bits to it. It's deceptively simple. But you talked about adopting it a piece at a time, and you end up in this transition period where some people would call it a hybrid between a waterfall approach and, a, and an agile approach. 
Yeah. Are you really getting any of the benefit from Scrum if you only adopt parts of it? As long as you're moving towards the whole vision, I would say, yeah. Okay. You know, I, I asked this question to Ken uh, when I took his class and he, you know, he set up a product backlog with the different elements of Scrum and he said, pick the one that addresses your biggest problem and start doing that piece of it just incredibly well and get, get used to the difficulty of transparency and get used to the, the stresses of trying to adapt when you learn that something's blocking you and you know, really ease into this because this is one of the biggest myths out there. And I think one of the biggest harms that we do is when we decide that you know, adopting an agile methodology or framework, regardless of it's Scrum, Kanban, whichever one you're choosing, that it's just for IT. Such a horrible myth. Like when we decide as an organization that we're moving to agility, what we're saying is we want to be opportunistic in the marketplace. You know, we're saying that we want to be customer focused. We're saying that we want to have the ability to, to respond to change. We're saying that we want to have the ability to meet needs in the marketplace sooner than our, our competitors. That's not just an IT endeavor. Right. That's the whole organization shifting and working together and creating true cross-functional teams. And so if you go at all of this too fast, too hot, too soon, uh, you just end up with roadblock after roadblock after roadblock because people are scared. They don't see the future vision for themselves in the company. They don't see you know, how they still get to keep their lake house and their Audi. You, know, you freak the middle management out quite a bit. But when you go incrementally, if you say, look, all we want to do is decide or define right now what done means, or all we want to do right now, you know, during the cadence of our current projects, can we pause every month? and see if we're aligned to our product vision. Or maybe every week we have a goal for the week and that starts morphing into a sprint goal. Or, or maybe instead of doing status meetings, can we switch to a daily scrum, trying to figure out how we're going to collaborate for the day. And I think as you add in these pieces over time, you start seeing less resistance. You see people, the light bulbs click sooner. You see people getting a little curious about this different way you're working instead of shocking the entire system all at once. You know, I, I think of it as, you know, it's a slow boil instead of doing a polar plunge if that makes right. sense. Yeah. I, I love the way you, you phrased it, which is, you know, it's okay to adopt it gradually as long as you're headed in the, in the consistent direction of adopting more and more of Scrum. I was really fortunate. I think my first Scrum project, we just dived right in. I ran a little Microsoft consultancy. There's four or five of us in the team. I thought we wanted to adopt Scrum for this project. The client was pushing us for more frequent prototypes and more engagement, and she wanted to throw out the requirements specification. And I'd, I'd heard of Scrum, so I went and partnered with another Microsoft partner who had a great Scrum master and a couple of technical people. I was really lucky that, that they just shepherded us through the whole process of adopting Scrum to that project. So yeah, I loved, loved your advice there of adopting it gradually and, and taking an incremental iterative approach to the adoption of Scrum as well. A lot of companies that I work with, they're currently successful. They're currently profitable. They have customers that are, are pleased. Why would we put that at risk by trying to upend everything at once? So what really, what it comes down to, Neil, is I'm actually not that worried about Scrum. And that's kind of weird for a professional Scrum trainer to say. I know that's kind of odd, but I'm actually a big fan of empiricism. I want people to start thinking about making new decisions frequently based on observations and data. And right now, Scrum is the best framework that I know of that, that brings that to the forefront and turns that mindset into a competitive advantage. So I want people to, yeah, let's figure out why the definition of done is so important. Let's figure out why sprint goals help our teams focus. Let's, but have that curious eye and that curious mind as they're doing it to figure out, all right, our work's transparent. We're seeing good results. Let's inspect that. Let's amplify that. Let's make adaptations that keep us moving in a good direction. And if teams are able to, to adopt that mindset, Scrum will flow freely from that. And so that incremental method, it just lets us get used to the idea that, you know, thoughts and feelings are fun. But how do we know the things we know? And empiricism gives us answers. And we're trying to get back to that space, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I was chatting with Mia Horrigan, my um, professional scrum trainer, a local class I took recently oh, about Mia's empiricism. Good. Yeah, she's, she's awesome. Hi, Mia. <laughs> I, I said, look, the, I, I went to university. I studied biochemistry. We used to devise a hypothesis. We used to run experiments to test it. We used to inspect the results of the experiments to see whether they supported the hypothesis or not. And that's the scientific method. What's the difference between that and empiricism? She said, nothing. That's just exactly the same thing. Yeah. If, if anyone out there listening has a chance to take a class with Mia, jump on that opportunity. She's just a wonderful PST in the community. Yeah. But yeah, she's right. There's not a lot of difference. We're just, think about it this way too. And, and I'm sure she would, she said something similar to you as well. Everything in our product backlog is a hypothesis. 
and we use Scrum to validate whether or not the thing that we thought someone wanted is something they actually wanted and they're willing to pay for, right? Did we deliver value? Yes or no. So everything we're doing up until we release is just a guess. It's a hypothesis. It's, it's an experiment. I mean, we are leveraging the scientific method basically to stay aligned to a customer, to stay relevant in a marketplace and to figure out whether or not we're actually capable of shipping something frequently. And I, and I think there's just, there's an elegance to that. I think there's a genius to that. I truly believe that, that Ken Schwaber and Jeff Sutherland literally changed the world by bringing this framework to the forefront. Like it, you would be hard pressed to find someone. I mean, there, I mean, there's a few like interchangeable parts was pretty amazing. Some of the, the factory advances from Toyota and the, the Kaizen and the Toyota way is pretty amazing. But when you think about how thought work, how knowledge work, how creative work is done in organizations today, I think Ken and Jeff will go down as two geniuses who elegantly brought the scientific method to creative and knowledge work. And I think mm. that'll be celebrated well past any of our lifetimes. So Ryan, I'm, I'm keen to find out more about your new book, Fixing yeah. Your Scrum. Uh, it's just been published on Amazon. So congratulations on that. Um, I've had a chance to read it. You've taken each of the parts of Scrum dived into some of the, what I'd call the anti-patterns that, that we see. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I recognize that situation. Oh yeah, multiple, multiple product owners. Oh yeah, I've had that. Part-time product owners. Yeah, I've, I've, I've experienced and struggled with that as well. And you give these really useful, very practical interventions that a Scrum team or a Scrum master can, can run with that team to try and work around that particular challenge. So can you tell us more about the book and particularly who the audience, who the intended readers are for your book? Yeah, so so this book, so Todd Miller and I, Todd's another PST professional scrum trainer with scrum.org. So he and I sat down and over the past two years, we so we did not want to do another intro to scrum book. There's plenty of those. There's, right. there's thousands of those kind of resources. There's great podcast videos, blogs. So this is not a, a scrum 101 book. This book is for anyone working on a scrum team, primarily scrum masters who have noticed that something isn't quite right who have noticed that they're not getting the full value out of Scrum, who have noticed that what was supposed to be something that brought joy to their work is, is actually miserable. And that could be a dev team member, it could be a, a product owner, it could be a Scrum master, it could be a manager who's trying to figure out why aren't we delivering? You know, all of those roles could, I, I think, get something out of this book because here's what Todd and I did. We sat down and we said, look, we're not going to do an intro book. And so there's plenty of those and I can recommend some great ones if you want to know what those are. What we're going to do What's everything that we've seen over the past 20 years in organizations? What's every dysfunction? Let's catalog them. Let's, let's get them captured. Let's explain typically why they happen. Let's give some scrum theory behind you know, some of those whys and how you know, getting out of alignment with the scrum values could be a problem. Like give some theory, but then let's pretend we're consultants in a company and we see this issue. What's everything that we would try? What are all the key questions we would ask? What are the liberating structures we would use to diagnose the issue? What are some facilitation techniques? How would we coach? So we basically put ourselves in the place of the consultant and how we have addressed these issues over the past 20 years. And we tried to put all of it in the book, right? We didn't hold back. And so there's even a coach's corner section after each chapter. So if you're in the, the sprint planning chapter, if everything we've said so far hasn't quite resonated, we give you this one big idea at the end that hopefully helps you as well. It's just been met with some amazing results. I think people are super happy with it. We get a lot of comments about, wow, you, exactly what you said, Neil. Yeah, I've seen this issue before. And the, what, what you guys put in the book, it really made me think about it differently. And thanks for that liberating structure. Or thanks for that pointer about a different retro format. We've also gotten some hate mail. Uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of interesting. We've had some consultants reach out and say, you guys are the worst. You know, This is going to take away consulting work. You know, I make my money going in and solving these problems. Why did you publish? In all seriousness, you know, why did you guys publish this? And so for that, we, we just, we frame those and we call that yeah. a win. Um, yeah. Because we didn't want to give just another theory book. There's plenty of those. What we wanted to do was to give practitioners a way to diagnose what's going on, to give them some ideas about what they could do, generate some thoughts, and really like something useful, practical, something they could apply immediately. And I hope, and I would love to hear from your listeners and those that, that read it, you know, hit me up uh, on Twitter at Ryan Ripley. Let me know, did, the, did we hit the mark? And what have you gotten out of the book? If you'd like to win a copy of Ryan's book, Fixing Your Scrum, I'm giving away four copies. All you have to do is visit customary 
fixingyourscrum.com slash fixingyourscrum and enter your email address. I'll be drawing four names on Friday, the 10th of April, 2020 at 9am Australian Eastern Standard Time. That's customary.com slash fixingyourscrum. Good luck. One of the things I got out of the book, I took away one of the practices you recommended. It was around the first chapter, I think, on Scrum Values, was to, in a retrospective with my team, walk through each of the practices in Scrum and have us self-evaluate how well we're adopting those practices and also all the complementary practices that we've brought into our Scrum team as well. So user stories and planning poker and all these kinds of things as well. And it was a great way for the team to reflect on how well we embrace each of the Scrum values and, and the pillars of transparency and inspection adaptation, as well as all the Scrum practices. And yeah, it was a really enlightening moment and a great way to run a retrospective. We're about a year and a half, almost two years in, we're 40 sprints in. So this is a fairly well-established Scrum team with still lots and lots to learn. So thanks for putting that one in the book. No, I, and I love hearing that. And I, and I love the comments you made, you know, still lots and lots to learn. What's funny is, you know, Todd and I, we will work with teams We'll go coach Scrum teams. We'll coach Scrum masters. We obviously we teach the the two day courses through Scrum.org. You know we we co teach the advanced Scrum. We do all this stuff, and we still mess up too. Like we still get it wrong. After twenty years, you would think that we would have all this figured out, but no. I mean, we're still learning as well. In fact, writing the book, we had to really, we really had to inspect what we truly believed to be true about Scrum, and we had to figure out what we truly believed to be necessary, to be helpful. And we learned along through that process. Like we did not agree on everything in the book and we had to, you know, come to consensus and figure out why there's gaps. And I'm going to be on a phone call with him later today. We're going to have some conversation about a class he just did. And, and he's, you know, he's like, dude, this happened. You ever seen it? And I'm like, no, but tell me more. Like, we're still just geeking out on the learning aspect of this. And we're supposed to be like the all knowing industry experts. And, and we're not, we've seen a lot of stuff. We know some cool questions to ask. We put all of it in the book. And we're just as excited 20 years in learning about things as your team who's a year or two in. And I think that's really, that's so important that people realize the trainer at the front of the room, we're still learning too. We've just been doing it a little longer. Yeah, amazing. Brian, I wonder if I could ask you some of the questions I commonly get asked by Microsoft business applications professionals. Sure. Trying to adopt Scrum or thinking about adopting Scrum. One of the first things they come up with is, is Scrum suitable for my project? Yeah. And there's a couple of common scenarios where there's a perception that Scrum is not the right approach. I'll give you the the two that I can think of. One is enterprise resource planning or ERP projects, which are typically big, long-running enterprise scale projects to replace a legacy ERP system. It's hard to do that incrementally. You have to kind of go with a big release to replace that existing system. There's Dozens or hundreds of people involved in those projects and ERP practitioners, for some reason, think that a waterfall approach where everything is analyzed up front, designed ahead of time and implemented, and then they go into maybe a hybrid of iterative development before they go into a massive testing phase and, and everything else. So that's, that's one challenge is the huge ERP project. And the other one is at the other end of the scale with power apps where you've got this low code, no code development platform. People are building sometimes personal productivity apps. It's just me, a couple of days, spinning up a little app to take care of my family budget. Or it could be slightly bigger than that. It's a few of us spending a couple of weeks building an application for our department. And it's gonna be used by you know 100 people in, in our teams. Have you seen extremes at either of those kind of scales where Scrum is not such a good fit, or do you think that Scrum can apply to almost any kind of complex work product that we're trying to build? I think in a complex space, Scrum is a great fit. I think there's caveats and context and all these important things we need to take into account. So I would love to give a blanket, you know, general answer, but I can't. So in the ERP space, I think one of the biggest challenges in ERP is actually the master data. How do we handle data within the system? How do, and I think right. there's some big upfront discussions that need to happen about where does data come from? Where does it need to go? What are the integrations? And I'm okay with that. The nature of the beast is that we have to figure that out. We need to know how that data is structured. We need to know where it needs to go, where it needs to come from, what kind of security goes around it. I think there's discussions we just have to have that you don't want to discover three sprints down the road. Now, that said, once we figure out some of those things that we, and I would actually argue a master data management plan 
or a master data management system within an ERP is a deliverable. Mm. I don't think you're breaking any rules by iteratively working through what master data looks like before taking on the rest of the challenge of implementing ERP. I think you just need to be creative about it. I also think when you're implementing these systems, yes, when you flip the switch, it will be a big bang release. It's very hard to have you know, half of uh, Microsoft Dynamics running as you're trying to get off of SAP, right? That's, that's yep. a very big challenge. So there will be a, a cutover period. I do think, though, that once you have the data issues lined up and you understand you have that workflow kind of mapped out, you can incrementally build those pieces. And so if you're doing the full suite of Microsoft Dynamics or, or these different systems, you're going to go from CRM to finance to manufacturing to distribution. You might have an HR module, you all these things happening. There's no reason why we cannot incrementally work with those different business departments, work with those different pieces and get those in really good shape, validate that the data is moving through correctly and still get leveraged some of the benefits of Scrum because then we, you know, in this case, the power of Scrum, I think will be stakeholder management. Like even though we're doing things kind of we might have to do a few things up front. I'm okay with that. If we're working with different business teams and different aspects of the ERP at different times, great. But what if all the stakeholders can see everything we've done in sprint review each and every month? Like what if they can actually get an update on the roadmap, get updates on, on, the, on the runway, get updates on when they're going to be needed so they can get their teams ready? Just that level of transparency alone, I think brings a ton of value back to, back to that team. I also think in sprint planning, what if we, even if we are doing things a little differently than, than optimal, what if all of those, those groups could be in sprint planning so they know up front, are we needed this sprint? Where do we need to be? What's all the blocking and tackling that needs to happen? So I think the framework gives us some boundaries. It gives us cadences to where we can check in, keep people engaged, raise transparency of the work, but it can also help us see when we're off track, right? I think there's some yeah. benefit that knowing that we thought this was going to be like, you know, 10 to 20 sprints and we're on sprint seven and we still haven't shipped anything or we, you kind of get that, that cadence, that feel. And so I think there's good benefits there, but there's modifications we have to make. Context is everything, right? Oh, I love that because there's a lot of scrum masters out there who take a, like a scrum police officer approach and it's, you know, they, they got to follow the guide very dogmatically. And yeah. I, I find, you know, you have to really adapt to the environment that you're operating in and bring as much of the Scrum framework to the situation as possible, but it might be a little bit at a time, or it might be, you know, there might be some flexibility in the way that you approach a, a complex project. Look, we're here to ship, and that's that's my mantra. Like, I am not. I mean, there's different different types of agile coaches. There are different types of Scrum masters. For me, it's we are here to ship valuable things that that bring an impact to our customers, that bring great outcomes for our organizations. That's first and foremost, right? So I. The legalistic view of the Scrum Guide and trying to turn everything into, you know, this step one to a thousand to delivery nirvana makes no sense to me. We need to be pragmatic in the way that we work. Scrum is so lightweight. You can use the framework and not have it hold you back. I think people get really wrapped around the axle because they pull in so many different things. We got to do story points. We got to do planning poker. No, you don't. You absolutely do not have to do any of those things, right? But there's three roles, five events, three artifacts, three, five, three, super simple. We can wrap that into an ERP project. We might have some upfront master data work. So what? You know, the purest chill out ERP is kind of a different beast, right? Yeah. The other end of that spectrum that you talked about, you know, kind of the more, I'm not going to say trivial projects, but like, I think ones that require much smaller teams, if it's just a solo activity, I'll still set up a quick board and move some post-its. But am I going to sit around and do a sprint review by myself? No. Right? <laughs> and so sometimes we get a little practical here. But if you've got three, four, five people in a department and you're writing an app for departmental use and it could be valuable to get feedback, right? So think about why we use Scrum. And I think that can help answer these questions. We use Scrum. I mean, there's many different reasons why we use it, but we were bringing empiricism to the forefront. When could it be helpful to make our work transparent so that other people could inspect what we're doing and we can make adaptations that get us to where we want to be, right? I think that's what we have to ask ourselves. Is it valuable to get feedback about what we're doing? Which cadence or what cadence would be valuable to get that feedback at? And then can the framework help us get that information? Can we use it in a way that's to our advantage so that we're building the best product possible within all of our means and constraints and rules so that it serves a customer in a good way? And I think if the answer is yes to the majority of those questions, Scrum is probably going to help you. All right. So talking about the cadence, 
I remember early editions of the Scrum Guide, a sprint was between a week and a month long. Now I'm pretty sure that the mention of a week is gone, right? It's just, it has to be less than 30 days or it should be less than 30 days. Have you ever seen anybody run sprints and maintain a cadence with a, a sprint that's less than one week where they want really rapid feedback and they're generating prototypes on a daily or, or you know, a couple of times a week basis? You know what? I, I have. And so sprints are limited to one calendar month. That's the only guidance in the scrum guide now, right? So you cannot go past a calendar month. Yep. As far if you want to run a one day sprint. Yeah. I see people do that, especially when they're spiking things, right. when they're trying to discover something, you know, but I've seen teams work in one day sprints. To me, it, it, it seems really short. And I think there's very specific reasons and, and, and context where that could work. Typically, what I see is somewhere between anywhere from two to four weeks, right? Or one calendar month, right? And, and people get really wrapped around the axle about this too, where I read a blog post that two weeks is the right sprint length. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, there is no such thing as a correct sprint length. We, we address this in the book very directly. A sprint and the length that we choose, it's all about feedback. How long can you go uh, without getting feedback? How risky is too long to go? without connecting with your customer? How long can your development team focus on a problem? How stable is your market? How stable is your product backlog, right? Maybe you can't go more than a week without dramatic changes. And so one week is your sprint link. There's so, it's a planning horizon. Like there's so many good reasons to pick a sprint link, trying to figure out which one is best, like what's the best practice. That's the worst reason to pick a sprint link. And so what can one day fit in a certain kind? I would imagine uh, given what's going on right now in the world, it's very hard to predict or plan more than one day. And so I'd imagine when you think about the CDC, the WHO, you know, all these groups trying to figure out how to contain COVID-19, I think they're working in one-day increments. Right. And I hope they're using something like Scrum to where data is at the forefront. And, and I believe they are. I believe that in this case, everything is so dynamic. Everything is so unknown. I think one-day sprints would make total sense, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. For an ERP project, go with the one calendar month. You talked about stability of the product backlog as a factor there. I'm, I'm thinking stability of my product owner um, <laughs> as a bigger factor. Well, I'm, trying, I'm trying to be nice, but yes, it's often the stability of your product owner as well. Okay, just talking about the product owner for a moment, a lot of the times on our Microsoft projects, the product owner is the Microsoft customer maybe a, you know, a line of business manager or departmental head, um, yeah. somebody who's never, you know, maybe worked on a couple of IT projects before as a stakeholder, but they're being cajoled or, or thrust into this product owner role, probably for the first time. They've probably yep. never had that much responsibility for an application before. And they've hardly ever had any training as a product owner. What can we do as a community to support that person in their first time product owner role? This will sound self-serving. I don't mean it to be. Get the person some training. Get them into a class. And it doesn't have to be one of, one of mine or one of it, It's <laughs> Just get them at least a base level of education about what's expected of them and make sure that they're actually capable of that. Todd and I have seen, and we talk about this in the book as well, where we see product owners who just get thrown into the deep end, but no one ever throws a hand out to help them. I think that's yeah. really, that's really interesting. I think, you know, after that, I, you know, some teams get really weird about, well, the, the development team does not touch the product backlog. That's hundred percent the product owner. And we say nonsense, right? The product owner and the dev team, they have a wildly collaborative relationship. They are working together constantly. One of the principles of the, the manifesto of agile software development involves the, the business and IT working together frequently. Right. That's just one of our, the principles that you accept when you adopt an agile framework like Scrum. And so yeah. that product owner and dev team, they are a, a highly collaborative unit. They are working together frequently. There's no reason why the dev team can, why they can't step up and help get the product backlog in good shape. And in, in fact, the Scrum Guide mentions refinement. No refinement is a collaborative activity. It's not just a product owner sitting alone trying to figure out what to, what to write. I mean, the dev team is right there with them. And so I think the next thing we can do is encourage developers to kind of step up. And if they can bring some expertise about the, the domain, they can bring some expertise about the product and really support that product owner as they really focus in on that product vision and try to figure out what, what goes on the product backlog, engage them as well. 
if we need to need to pull outside help in, maybe there's some industry experts that can come in and really look for this context. If you're trying to build an auto driven car, here's the stuff we've looked at. Here's the the pieces and parts and the sensors that really make like really just bring in that kind of support. And so a lot of it's self-awareness, a lot of it's a training thing. In any case, a competent scrum master is one of the best partners to a product owner. And so a competent scrum, a professional scrum master can actually sit there and say, Hey, look, I think this is a gap. Let's work together to figure out how to fill it. You know, when I'm in a scrum master role, my job is to help that product owner level up. It's to get them promoted in the organization. It's to get them the influence they need to be able to make decisions about a product. And part of that is kind of, sometimes it's building their credibility, building up their, their skill set. And so I, I think when these roles interact in a healthy way, in a way that when they're committed to supporting one another, when they're committed to building on the, the success of each other, we also see a lot of these patterns play out pretty well too. Just reflecting on that with a friend of mine who's also a scrum master, we're both very passionate about supporting our product owners. We've taken the professional scrum product owner um, certification and studied for that because I think that as a scrum master, the more I know about the product owner role, the better I can support and serve my product owner. But we're looking for a PSPO2 class. There's none being delivered in Australia this year. So Ryan, I don't know if you're... uh, if you're certified to deliver that training class, you're welcome to come out to Oz and, uh, and deliver some training on that. But do you think that's a, that's a healthy pursuit for Scrum Masters to take certifications that, and training that's broader than just the Scrum Master stuff? Oh, absolutely. Like I, I think as a Scrum Master, when I'm performing that role, I need to understand the needs of the people that I'm serving, right? And so I should understand the product owner role and I should understand how to support and help and find help for that person. So I, I totally agree with you, Neil. And I, you know, as far as like taking a trip over to Australia, I, we'll figure out how to make that happen. I'm sure I can talk Todd into flying over and we'll, we'll figure out how to get a, or, or maybe Mia's got an advanced product owner uh, class coming up, but we'll figure out, I, we've always wanted to do an Australian tour. So maybe we'll figure that out. But you know, I, the, the, the class is great and it will help get people in the mindset. I think the training is awesome, but I also, I really think that that having that, that scrum master who understands the role, who knows how to serve a product owner in a way that that helps that product owner grow. I mean, that's the definition of servant leadership, right? Those around you are thriving and growing and they're, and they're growing into a a version of themselves and they're fulfilling the role in such a way that that person may not even believe is possible yet, right? You're inspiring them to new heights and that that's what we need out of scrum masters. And and so, yeah, I, you know, actually there's a, you know, even within companies, we, in private classes, sometimes we'll teach, product owner and scrum master class in a combined way where the scrum master and the product owner get educated together. Oh, that's been super, super popular. I think it's been wildly powerful for that because it starts building that bond early. The, the product owner is like, oh, hey, now I understand why you're so busy in the org scrum master. And the scrum master is like, oh, hey, now I understand why you're constantly stressing out about trying to order. Th-. You get that empathy, you get that, right. that shared understanding. And I, and I think that goes a long way too. Talking about the, the training that's available and the certifications, Scrum.org has a, has a bunch and a, a growing portfolio of certifications and training that's available. There's others as well on the market. I sometimes get questions because people are a little confused about where should they start. They're yeah. new to Scrum. They're looking at the, there's a professional Scrum foundations. I think it's a course, but there's no certification to go with that one. So with the professional Scrum foundations class, you do get to take the PSM one uh, assessment. So the PSM ah. one, it is tied to the professional scrum foundations course. Right. Okay. So what, why are there two courses supporting one certification? That's uh, I, well, I didn't it, appreciate it, that subtlety. No, that's a great question, right? So the PSM is, is all about the scrum master. PSF is scrum for teams, right? So we'll, we'll bring the scrum master, the product owner developers, we'll bring multiple scrum masters, multiple product owners into a PSF, teach them the foundations of scrum, teach them empiricism, but then they also actually do a real project throughout the class using Scrum. And so it's not always software. We have other activities for non-software teams. And I think this is a wonderful starting point. It's not a beginner class. It is a very challenging course, but I think it's one that we learn by doing. And, and I love that aspect of the PSF. I think Jill Graves and, and Rich Vistoski, the two stewards for the course with Scrum.org, They've built out a brilliant experience. I just taught one last week down into Houston, Texas, and it was a non-software context. It's uh, a financial company that loved it. They're, they're taking lessons from it. They're applying it to their work. 
I, I think that's a great entry point. I think the PSM course for Scrum Masters is a great entry point. I think both of those are great options depending on your needs to get started. If you're a product owner, go to the PSPO course. I, but I think PSF is good too. So we have these, these first step courses that I think are great depending on your role. And what, as you mentioned, the portfolio of classes is growing. What we're trying to do is figure out, you have a Scrum Master who's been around a couple of years, you have a product owner who's been doing this role for a while. How do we help them continue to, to hone their craft? How do we help them figure out what's the next thing to learn? And so you're seeing these, what I think one of the more interesting ones is that professional Scrum with Kanban. Mm, yep. Whoever thought that we could actually reach out to Daniel Vacanti, who's actually, I mean, for those of you not familiar with Daniel, he brought Kanban to North America in a commercial way. David Anderson gets the credit because he wrote the book. Daniel has been at the forefront of this for years. Daniel is just an amazing practitioner. Um, he partnered with Yuval Urit and Scrum.org to create this professional Scrum with Kanban course. And what we're trying to do is show that through lean metrics and Kanban principles, Scrum Masters can help teams diagnose and correct and, and lead to, I think, even a cleaner version of delivery, depending on whether or not they want to use these principles and practices. And so that's just another tool in the toolbox for a Scrum Master to reach for when the situation calls. There's also a professional Scrum with UX UI. So Jeff uh, Gothelf and Josh Seedon, they wrote Lean UX, like one of the most popular UX books on the market. They partnered with Eric Weber and Gary Pedretti with, in, within Scrum.org, and they built this professional Scrum with UX UI course. It's, a, it's a, an amazing course. Where does UX UI fit on a Scrum team? Such mm -hmm. a hard question to answer. Yep. Come join us for two days, and let's show you exactly how design flows into product development on a Scrum team. And it just leads to this beautiful, collaborative sense of, of team. And so we're trying to build these out, at least my opinion. I'm not a spokesperson for, for Scrum.org. I'm just one of the trainers who loves what they're doing. But I think what we're trying to do is give Scrum Masters, product owners, dev team members, Scrum teams, the tools they need based on the situation they're facing. And these courses are building out that toolkit. I think it's been a really fascinating evolution of offerings over the past two to three years. Do you ever hear requests or, or see demand for a bit more assistance and support with planning? You know, Scrum yep. has got a couple of planning events, but I quite often hear like, where do I get the big picture? How do I plan a release or a project so that I get a sense of how much it's going to cost and how long it might take and what we might get and what resources yeah. we're going to need over this, you know, 12, 18, 24 month program. and you know, we've got initiatives like design thinking, user story mapping, that are tools that can help us. But within the Scrum framework itself, there seems to be a bit of a gap there. And I don't know if you've heard that kind of feedback before or, or what your teams have done to address that. Yeah, and so absolutely. And, and the beautiful thing about Scrum is that it is a framework, so we can pull story mapping into the, into the framework. We can pull portfolio management tools and processes and practices into the framework, and we don't have to necessarily re reinvent the wheel each time. I will say this, and this might actually, this might be a little controversial. I think the reason SAFE got a foothold in the marketplace is because they addressed that gap, right? Right. They showed PMOs how to still do some of the planning that they're used to in that waterfall way, but it still flows into some kind of agile way. And, and I think that when they filled that gap, I think Dean did a really smart thing there and he made kind of the, some people call it old wine in a new bottle. I don't know if that's fair or not. But what I think he did was he showed people that you can still do some of these practices, but you still get some of the benefits. And, and I, I agree, it's a gap that I think he was able to fill pretty quickly. I think he did it in a clean way. And so, you know, kudos to him. I think in a, in a scrum, a professional, professional scrum context, we can pull in practices that help augment the framework. And again, I'm going back to this idea of a professional, competent scrum master has those in their toolkit. Right. This is not a role that one of the big anti patterns in the book is that the scrum master role can just be rotated. The scrum master role is just an admin. The scrum master role is not a challenging professional type of role. When you treat it that way, there's gaps in the framework. When you treat it that way, we don't know how to support people. When you treat it that way, we don't know how to help our, our product owner. But when it's a professional scrum master who's empowered by the organization to do amazing things and they have a full toolkit, they've spent years crafting. You know, working on their craft and they, they accept coaching and mentoring and they go to train. We do all these great things, right? We're, we're continual learners. Those people know how to fill in the framework in productive ways that help meet those gaps. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And uh, I've seen 
really competent, like you say, professional scrum masters with just a, a broad portfolio of tools to bring in and they, and they very quickly pick up the context, the environment, the needs of the organization to try and make sure that the scrum team that they're working with can be successful, but also in the broader context of helping the organization to learn what could be useful for the next project and other projects and other teams. And it's a wonderful uh, privilege to be given as a scrum master, to be, to be trusted to do that and to be able to bring all the experience you have to bear on, on the scrum team you're working with and, and all the possible scrum teams you could work with in the future. Yeah, could not agree more. I mean, servant leadership is a position of honor. It's it's a true privilege to have the opportunity to serve people in that way. And, and I think as a professional scrum master, we take it seriously. We We decide that we have to show up and be excellent for these people because they're counting on us to serve them in ways that, that lead to greatness for them. And, and I think right. that's a truly important undertaking. Um, so I've got a couple of final questions for you, Ryan. I really appreciate you joining us. Next version of the Scrum Guide. Well, the last version was 2017. Yep. I get the feeling like we're overdue for a revision, please. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, it's probably not yours to publish the next version. But do you think we're going to see one soon? And if we are, what's on your wish list? What would you love to see modernized or adapted in the next version of the Scrum Guide? You know, I have no insights when the next Scrum Guide could drop, if it will drop. I mean, so I can't, sorry, no, uh, no exclusives here. I've always had put my trust in Ken and Jeff. I think they've always done a great job of, of upholding empiricism in the Scrum Guide. I'm not too worried about it. The Scrum Guide is in great hands with Ken and Jeff, and I can't wait to see what they come up with next. And when that happens, I, I'm sure we'll, we'll be back on shows talking about it, and we'll dissect it and try to figure out how this has changed the world yet again. As far as the change I would like, I don't know if there's a ch what kind of change this would lead to, but I am I'm a big fan of the sprint goal, mm. and I far too many teams skip it. And I think far too many teams abuse it. They turn it into a list of JIRA tickets that need to be implemented. They turn it into, they basically turn it into a scoping statement. And uh, there should be no, the word and should not be in your sprint goal. There shouldn't be any commas in your sprint goal. There shouldn't be ticket <laughs> numbers in your sprint goal. So if it were, you know, if I could, if I had the magic pen and I could edit anything, I might be tempted to turn the sprint goal into an artifact. So, you know, sprint goals would lead to increments and, and I'm, I'm not sure how I would word it. I'm not sure how, if that would break too many things, but I would like to see the sprint goal. I mean, it's already mentioned 27 times. In yeah, I learned sprint. that in, in your book. It's, it's the second yeah. most common phrase in the scrum guide and it's not an artifact uh, in its own right. I know. And so it's amazing to me that people skip it. And so I would be tempted to elevate sprint goal to an artifact, but I, I would say this too. I, the reason I wouldn't do that is that it would make Scrum heavier. And I think what's interesting, if you look at the change logs on scrumguides.org, traditionally, they've made Scrum lighter. Mm. So it's been addition through subtraction. And so I'm very hesitant to add things, but yeah, I would probably make Sprint Goal an artifact and find a way to kind of trim some of the language elsewhere. Well, I, I know you're passionate about the Sprint Goal, and I, would, uh, <laughs> I thought you might have mentioned it. I would go along the same lines. I would merge the Sprint Goal and the Sprint Backlog into a single artifact and say that the Sprint Goal is our objective for the Sprint, and uh, it has a plan for how we're going to achieve it, and that's our Sprint Backlog. I, I um, like that a lot. And so right now the Sprint Backlog is two pieces, right? So we pull product backlog items in, we do a little decomposition to get started. But what above that? I like that a lot. What if sprint goal is just another aspect of sprint backlog? So not yep. a new artifact, but a first class citizen. I love that. I think yep. that's a great way to do it without making Scrum heavier. We fixed it. Solve the Scrum <laughs> for the world. Fix it. Good. Well, uh, no, I was thinking of, um, I, I would then deprecate the sprint backlog because one of the things a little bit confusing about Scrum is we've got two backlogs. So let's just call it the product backlog and, the, and each sprint goal but you know i'll let ken and jeff share their wisdom with us hopefully soon in a, in a revision but yeah we'll see where they want to take it one final question for you ryan i'm a big fan of audiobooks there are lots of scrum books out there you know you talked about a big library of 101 books and everything that's available there are very few audiobooks available and your book isn't yet available on <laughs> on as an audiobook any plans for that can we can we tempt you to use your wonderful podcast voice to read your book? So I am working with Todd on this. We are not committing to it yet. We would love to do it. We've got to work this out with our publisher, but clearly I have enough 
recording equipment to do this. I think if I were forced to put a bet on it, I would probably put some money on it that it will happen. Great. But it, we're not kidding yet. You heard it here first, folks. That's an exclusive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we heard him not commit to anything. That's our, but I, if I have my way, yes, we will end up doing an audio version of some sort. That'd be great. I ride my motorbike to work and love to slip in some headphones underneath my helmet and listen to an audio book. And yeah, it's a great way to learn. We'd love to listen to your book as well as read it. So Ryan, thanks very much for joining us. How can people keep in touch with you or, or follow your work? And tell us where they can get the Fixing Your Scrum Book. Yeah, so thank you, Neil. Certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. So I'm Ryan Ripley, at Ryan Ripley on Twitter. RyanRipley.com is the website. If you find me on LinkedIn, feel free to connect. Uh, The book is Fixing Your Scrum, Practical Solutions to Common Scrum Problems. It's available on Amazon. I think it's now globally available on Amazon. If you go to Amazon and order the book, that's great. Kindle and paperback available there. If you go to Pragprog, Dot com. So Pragmatic Programmers, they're the Pragmatic Bookshelf. They're an imprint of O'Reilly. They are our publisher. You can also buy the digital version from them as well. But yeah, so it's pragprog.com or Amazon. If you do buy a copy, thank you so much. Please, you know, send a tweet, you know, at Ryan Ripley, send me an email, you know, Ryan at RyanRipley.com. Let me know what you think of the book. And uh, we just can't wait to see, you know, the, you don't get rich writing books, Neil, but what you do, I mean, first of all, it's an amazing business card, right? Yeah. But I think more importantly, and we've had so many of these, but I can't wait to see more. Someone just coming, just stepping up to you at a conference, someone sending you a tweet, someone shooting you a quick email, just saying, hey, we tried something in here. It really helped our team. We got unstuck. Thank you. And that's to, to us, that's the biggest reward. We're not worried about the money. We're not worried about the fame. We're not worried about you know, all of those silly things. What we're worried about is, did we actually put something into the world that brings a team some value? Right. And so uh, that's the that's the greatest reward we could get from this book. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of late nights and heartache. Hopefully you get a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings afterwards. That's that's your yeah, yeah. yeah, good stuff. Yeah. That's a fantastic book. I you know, I had a rip through it and it was really enlightening read. I'll be able to put some of the very practical advice into use straight away. So I really like that approach. So thanks for to you and to, Todd for delivering that book. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That just that made my day. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah. A big thanks to Ryan for coming onto the show and sharing his insights with us. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation and learned as much from it as I did. I highly recommend Ryan's book, Fixing Your Scrum. Don't forget, you can enter my giveaway to win one of four copies by entering your email address at customary.com slash fixingyourscrum before 9am Australian Eastern on Friday, the 10th of April, 2020. Good luck entering the competition. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you can get early notification about any future giveaway competitions I'm running. Until then, I'll see you next time. Keep sprinting. Bye for now.